0: No, I've heard it said that it's easier to avoid the truth than to face it. I actually don't know if that is even true. But as Pilate said, what is truth anyways? Now, this is the question that he was facing during his encounter with Jesus. Now, Pilate was not new to tough questions. He'd been in politics for many years. In fact, he'd been the, the governor of Judea for 10 years by this point. And he, he knew the Jewish laws. He, he, he knew the Roman ones as well. And he knew how to walk a fine line between them in order to keep his power. You know, And at times, he had to make hard decisions. There were moments where he had to determine the truth of a situation that would come before him. And he had to do so in a manner that would, that would keep Rome happy and keep the people quiet. And he'd become pretty good at it. In, in fact, it had earned him a reputation throughout the land where he was known as being not just shrewd, but also harsh. And maybe even very controlling. He never shied away from a challenge in the past. In fact, not many of them had he given necessarily a second thought to, perhaps. But this truth that Jesus spoke of, this, there was something different about this that he could not fully resolve in his mind. Jesus said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Like A statement like that is going to catch your attention it's going to draw you into the moment because it doesn't leave any neutral ground. Because if you agree with the statement, then you're on side with Jesus and his truth. But, but if, you, if you disagree with that statement, then he's wrong. And truth perhaps is even unknowable. You know, a respected research group, uh, the Barn Institute, Looked into this with people one day. They conducted a survey where they asked many adults the question, is there such a thing as absolute truth? One truth for all time, for all cultures, for all situations, one truth. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And, and 66% of adults came back and said there is no such thing as absolute truth. Two-thirds of them rather believe that, that people can define truth in conflicting ways and that still be true. In fact, 72% of those who would be considered young adults, those who are the age of 18 to 25, affirmed this subjective view as well. And they, they even stated things like, well, well, truth is whatever you believe it to be. And, and truth is, if there is such a thing, kind of unknowable. I'm not sure we could ever know it if we saw it. And, and then one of the other things they said was actually probably one of the more shocking things. They said, people who believe in an absolute truth are dangerous you notice the similarities between the survey responses and the conversation between Pilate and Jesus? You see, when Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? That's actually more of a statement than a question. It's, it's like saying, Jesus, I'm not sure there is such a thing. And even if it does exist, what are the odds that you have defined and figured out the truth? And a big question that Pilate is trying to figure out, is Jesus dangerous does his claim to truth make him a threat to me and the empire that I'm controlling and that's actually one of the big questions that persists today even is Jesus the truth and is Jesus a threat to my empire now in the Bible Pilate's question sort of ends the conversation he has with Jesus but for us it's just the beginning because I want to investigate this a bit. See, people approach truth from a few different perspectives. And there's, you know, briefly, there's two basic views regarding how we understand what truth is. And one is referred to as the correspondence view. And simply put, the correspondence view means that truth must correspond to reality. And that a statement can only be true if it actually agrees with factual reality based upon logic. You know, therefore, a statement either is true or it is false. It cannot be both. For example, if I say to you right now, I am standing on this platform, that is only true if I'm what? Standing on the platform. Pretty straightforward. A few minutes ago it was false because I was was sitting down there. Would have been a false statement at that point because that was the factual reality of that moment. But presently, it's true. Because why? Here I am. And this is the view of truth that was held by most philosophers and most theologians throughout history until recently when there has been increased interest and increased more of a contemporary view of truth referred to as relativistic view, which claims that what's true is based upon a person or a cultural's view. That there actually is no objective reality, it's a little bit more subjective. Therefore, a statement is true simply because a person or culture believes it to be so. Now, some of you might want to outright dismiss this, but we we can't, because there actually is a place in the world for this type of truth. I'll give you an example. If, If you talk to somebody and they say the statement, soccer is the best sport in the world, there are certain cultures and certain people who will agree that that is a true statement. Now, no true blue Canadian would ever say that. No, the response of a Canadian would be, have you heard of hockey? Would be the response of that. But people within a certain culture would agree that that is a true statement. Meaning competing views of truth can coexist if they are validated by true sentiment. So where does the problem come in? Well, the problem emerges when people apply a relativistic view of truth in the realm of something that requires correspondence view of truth. For example, it doesn't matter what you think of me or what you think of sports or what you think about the weather we had last night. I am standing on this platform. That is not a relativistic reality. That is a true statement. It is an absolute truth based upon the evidence before you. Now when we apply this to the person and to the claims of Jesus, all of the available evidence does not allow for us to lean towards a relativistic view. Because Jesus made statements that require a decision to be made. The statements that Jesus makes about himself and the reason for which he came forces us towards a correspondence view of who he is. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he made some pretty absolute statements. Statements that were not neutral. They required a choice to be made. And you know, To Pilate, for example, he claimed to be a king from an otherworldly kingdom on the side of the truth, the absolute truth. Now that on its own might be a little bit cryptic, but throughout Jesus' entire ministry, if you, if you read the Gospels and see what he did and, and listen to the words that he spoke, you find that he actually made similar statements with more details. A couple examples. He said at one time, I am, definitive declaration. I am the light of the world. He was declaring that he was the one who was able to make the spiritually blind see the truth about God. He said, I am the resurrection and the life promising that he could provide a means to the afterlife. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is an exclusive statement, because nobody comes to the Father except through him, he said. He also made claims to be able to forgive sins, to set people free from their troubles and from their burdens. And if there was any confusion as to what he was getting at, one time he simply said, I and the Father am one. I and the Father am one. doesn't leave much room for... Wiggled on that one. Such these bold statements are not meant to be relative. They demand a choice to be made. Either they're true or they're not. And early in Jesus' ministry, when he claimed that he and the Father were one, his enemies did not hear a relativistic statement. They were so certain of what he was saying that they accused him of blasphemy, and they were so offended they picked up rocks to stone him to death over that statement. And now on Good Friday... The religious leaders have made their final choice. Jesus' claims to truth are too dangerous. So he must die. And so they present Jesus to Pilate, who is the only one who has the power in the line to carry out such a sentence. And now Pilate must decide what is truth. Now each person faces the same question when they have an encounter with Jesus. And the view of truth that you lean towards will have an influence on how you decide. Now, by definition, if a person is more persuaded towards a relativistic view of truth, then by definition, that that must allow for multiple perspectives on who Jesus is and, and multiple ways to God to coexist. Except there's a problem The problem is that Jesus didn't make relativistic statements. He made absolute statements. And isn't it interesting how people are usually okay with the idea that Jesus forgives sins, that Jesus is the way to God, until he declares that he is the only way. Once the statement becomes no longer relativistic, it becomes absolute. He and his view is discarded. But the problem is that he made absolute the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am am the way to the Father. I am the life. I am the truth. Either these are true or they're false. There is really no room for other options. And simply excluding Jesus from the situation or excluding his claims from the conversation is not an answer to the question. As C.S. Lewis famously quoted it, there are really only three options. That Jesus either was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. And here's how C.S. Lewis explained it. He said this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be something worse. The devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. But do not let and do not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us nor did he intend to leave it open to us. Basically summarizing the statement, C.S. Lewis is saying either Jesus' claims to truth are not true and he knew they weren't true in which case he's a liar. Or if Jesus' claims are not true But he genuinely believed he was the son of God. In which case, he's insane. Or, it's all true. And he is the son of God. And in which case, his teachings and his life changes everything. And if it changes everything, he is dangerous. He is dangerous to the enemy who wants to control your life the most important thing a person will ever do is to make a decision about the truthfulness of Jesus' statements and about his life. But what evidence do we have to base such a decision on? How How do we make such a determination? Well, I'm not able to go into extensive detail about that here this morning. But there's some things we can look to. For example, we can look to his teachings. The teachings of Jesus are considered to be some of the greatest teachings of all time. They are the foundations of so many aspects of our Western civilization. Over the past 2,000 years, we have seen unspeakable advancements in the areas of technology and engineering and knowledge, but no one has ever improved upon the words and the moral teachings that Jesus spoke. You know, from Jesus came the greatest words ever spoken, almost almost like the words you'd expect God to say. We can look to his teachings, we can also look to his life. And Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve until I give my life As a ransom for many, so that they may have life in abundance. By Christians and by others, Jesus is known by having a pure, persistent character. His enemies could find no fault in him, and his friends knew him to be without sin. He was known as one who cared for the marginalized and and had love for all people. And ultimately, his love led him to lay down his life for you and, and for me, and there is no greater love. There is no greater example of love than he demonstrated in doing so. You know, And the impact of his, of his teachings in his life are, are, are incredibly influential. But those two things on their own really simply set him up to be a, a great teacher, a, a great philosopher. Where we cannot dismiss his claims necessarily. But, but is that enough to have him considered the Son of God, the, the Messiah? But we can also look to prophecy. We can look to what Scripture says about him. And we can see that no one else in history has ever had so much written about them before they were even born. And Jesus, did you know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his lifetime? 29 of them on a single day around the events of Easter. Now some people will say, well, now, after his death, you know, scriptures were changed to, you know, to make sure things lined up. But there actually is no research to support that. Some people say, well, he knew these prophecies, and, and he just kind of turned it into a bucket list. You know, things to do before I die. But the, the problem with that understanding of how this prophecy is fulfilled in him is the sheer number of how many prophecies he fulfilled, but also how many of those prophecies were completely beyond human control. So for example, it was prophesied how he would die. That's beyond our control. The place of his burial, he was already dead. The place of his birth, he wasn't born yet. And his resurrection, which we'll talk more about and celebrate in the coming days. This is just a small sampling of the evidence and the reasons that we have to engage in an investigation of the question, who is Jesus and what is truth? It's an investigation, very worth your time if you have not pursued that in your life yet. You know, or if you're new to West Meadows, or if your connection does not go beyond Sunday morning, there are opportunities available for you to go deeper into these questions, to, to arrive at answers for yourselves, and I just invite you to simply come talk to us and, and allow us to walk alongside you, to explore these things with you, to, to join an alpha group, for example, where we can dig deeper into these and ask and answer questions together. Now, as people engage in such an exercise of exploring what is truth and who is Jesus and the evidence to support that, so sometimes they do come to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the only way to the Father, but they still resist taking that final step. They resist fully committing to it. And, and quite often as I talk to people in that situation, I find that it's because they perceive the negative implications that making such a statement will have upon their lives. If I say Jesus is the truth, that means I can no longer live a relativistic life, do whatever I want, existence. It's true. If we declare him to be the truth, we we can't. But can we also get a little bit honest and true? Because if you're anything like me, the the areas where I kind of wander off and try to live my do-whatever-I-want life, those are usually the ones that I mess up. (laughs) Those are the ones that tend to cause me the most grief, and also the ones where I find the most lies of the enemy who says, don't let go of that, and wants to keep you in that. He wants to keep you in that because of what happens if you declare Jesus to be the truth. Because if you say Jesus is the truth, and, and as he gave his life for you, you give your life to him, He gives you a rudder and a compass to guide you through the stormy seas of life. If you declare Jesus to be the truth, he gives you a new identity, a new new destiny, a new plan for a life that is bigger than you and bigger than this life. That's why Jesus came. He came to give us life, to give us now life and life eternal, that life that we may have it and have it in abundance. Have you come to see the truth of Jesus? Have you allowed the truth of Jesus to direct your life? I promise you this, that if you seek him, you will find him. And the truth that you find in him will stand up to your questions. And I pray that we'll all come to see Jesus as the truth and choose each day to live on the side of truth with him in his kingdom. That's what Pilate was wrestling with. And his actions proved that he was not ready to accept the things of God that day. So instead, he responded, what is truth? Not realizing he was looking it in the eye as he spoke those words. And then bowing to social and political pressure. To the shouts of the crowd, Pilate made his choice as well. And he literally washed his hands of the responsibility for Jesus' blood. And he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away from the palace, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set that upon his head. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, the King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him in the face with a staff, and they spit on him. And then falling down to the knees, they paid homage to him, And when they had finished mocking him, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. And there they crucified him. Pilate had a notice prepared and placed upon the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews... And then from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, God, Je- Jesus, cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some who were standing there heard him say this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and they filled it with wine vinegar and they, they put it up on a staff and they offered it to Jesus on the cross. And the rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he breathed his last. And in that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus and saw how he died, he simply said the words, Surely this man was the Son of God. As evening approached, a man from Arimathea named Joseph, who he himself had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. And the pilot ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he he wrapped it in clean linen cloths. Then he placed it in his own new tomb. Then he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance. And he went away.